Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. I recently actually played a role of a murderer. And he's lying to everyone all around him. People were looking at me in absolute horror because of how much weight I'd lost. Don't feel like a liar. I feel like I'm trying to tell a story. Even when you look at an image and you know that it's fake, we still see the same effect where it has an impact on your self-esteem and your own body dissatisfaction. Kia I'm Duncan Smith and this is Pants on Fire, the Fibber's Guide to Lies, Lying and Liars. As a child, if I was accused of making things up, I understood that whoever was accusing me thought I was telling lies. That very same phrase might well be used to describe what our most artistic people do when they're creating their finest artworks. Our focus in this episode is on the creative human urge to make things up. We dig into the artist's drive to search for truth and examine some of the ways that lies can manifest in this process. One definition of fiction is that fiction is the lie that tells the truth. This is Emily Perkins, a well-known writer of fiction and drama, currently senior lecturer with the Institute of Modern Letters at Victoria University. What we're after is a sense of, in all of our fictional plays or whatever, is revealing something that feels very true and that people can connect with. And obviously you're making up a story to reveal that true thing. Making up stories to reveal some sort of truth or understanding about the way we live sounds like an oxymoron. But it is in fact exactly what most writers of fiction aim to do. As a writer, do you feel like a a liar? No, I don't feel like a liar. I feel like I'm trying to tell a story and I'm trying to tell it in the truest way. I spend a lot of my energy in my writing, you know, in the moment of writing and my concentration on wanting things to feel true. If a narrative is invented or imagined around that truth, that's just the vehicle for telling it. Every time you sit down to um, explore a story and engage with a story and try to render it, you are making moral decisions. And sometimes you don't want to just accept what might be seen as a conventional morality. In fact, most of the time you don't. It's the job of the writer to kind of try and dig into that and think, well, why, why do we assume this is a moral truth or a moral value? Why are lies so potent in, in story and drama? Well, I think one of the reasons that lies can be potent is the sense of dramatic irony that an audience or a, a reader can be pulled towards a story if they know something that other characters don't know. So they're waiting for the moment where it's going to be revealed. And that's a very engaging kind of feeling as an audience member or as a reader 
but for the writer, you have to keep that within the bounds of, you know, credibility and um, possibility. One other thing I'll say about lying in fiction is that, like, the more elaborate and the more over-explained your lying is, the less credible it's going to seem and the more the people are going to, who are being lied to are going to start to smell something fishy. The same thing is true of fiction. So you have to just have the courage of your convictions when you're telling a story. The more you try and explain to the reader what they're meant to be thinking or what's actually going on, the more you lose the reader. So if you just show the story for what it is in the same way that a good liar might just convincingly simply tell a lie and not you know, decorate it and elaborate on it too much that's going to feel more true and more credible for the reader. You know, you can have incredibly nasty characters in fiction or drama and then it's what happens with them that becomes fascinating. So I think questions of morality in fiction and drama often sit around something like lying because you want to know what the story's going to do with that. We just all love watching characters who would do the things we don't think we can do ourselves. You clearly don't know who you're talking to, so let me clue you in. I am not in danger, Skylar. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot, and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. Yep. Lies are potent, and we love them, especially when it involves characters driven to the dark side. I caught up with writer Carl Nixon to talk about the lies that underpin TV series Breaking Bad. The central character um, gets into making methamphetamine and he's lying to everyone all around him, but he's doing it because he's got cancer and he wants to provide for his family. So that makes him a very, very uh, sympathetic liar. And he's telling the most outrageous lies to his wife and his son and, his, um, and his, the rest of his family and his, his co-workers. But at the same time, you're going, oh, yeah, that, no, that's good. That, that's a good thing. You do, you're doing a good thing, even though he's producing methamphetamine. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and by the end of the series, you maybe don't feel quite as sympathetic. No, exactly, him. but it does take such a long time, doesn't it? I mean, I can't remember, is it like five, five Yeah, seasons. something, yeah. So it's like, you know, you, you just, yeah, it, slowly, it slowly spins out of control, but you have that empathy to start with. So it draws you around. Whereas if he had just been a guy who'd been getting into making methamphetamine and lying to everyone because he just wanted the money, there's no sympathy there whatsoever. It's, it's a brilliant piece of writing, really. Jesse. Jesse. Wake up. Jesse. Wake up. I gave up on Walter White when he let his um, buddy's girlfriend die and he could have saved her. I can't remember. She was, oh, yeah, that she was, was quite early, yeah. Relatively early, and I thought that was too cynical for me. And I I mean, I watched the series. I loved the series. But, yeah. He yeah, was... yeah, he, yeah, he just lost it at that point. Yeah, that was pretty cynical. I think you, at that point you just relied on the fact that the, you were kind of invested in the character and, and he was such a... A, a shades of grey character at that yeah. point. But, but the beauty of that lie was that you knew, and I think this is a great thing about lies and stories, 
you know that at some point it's going to be revealed. And I don't think that particular lie was revealed till well on, right near the end. But several times you thought, I think when Walter was drunk at one point, you thought it was going to be revealed. He was almost going to tell him. As a, as a reader or a watcher, you think, oh, don't. Oh, no. No, because no. you, you just know that the consequences are going to be so terrible. So it creates a tension when the, you know something and you can watch that person about to reveal that lie and you think, oh, no, don't. Oh, it's a huge tension. And then, but you know at some point it's got to be revealed and that really sets up your expectations. For an audience, you are complicit in a lie like that. You're certainly not sitting on the outside and you feel involved and you know something that one of the other characters doesn't know. That's right. You kind of almost put yourself in that situation, don't you? You Suddenly you empathise and you think, oh, what would I do? And, that, and, it, and, and it also it throws up a number of possibilities about what's going to happen. This is not math. quote from Margaret Mahi, it may not be factual, but it's true, neatly sums up what many writers of fiction know all too well. I think both Emily and Carl would agree that in their work they're searching for something that speaks honestly about the human experience. To lie well is to lie close to the truth. Something I often do as a director when working with an actor is... You look for things in the actor's life that they can relate to, that bring them closer to the character or an emotion or what the character is going through. Jason Takari is an actor and director and former drama producer for RNZ. And during his career, he's been able to turn his real-life experiences into on-stage reality. I recently actually played a role of a murderer and for me it was about accessing a time in my life which was pretty dark where I had been assaulted by six young guys quite seriously and for me it was accessing that, that anger and that darkness that I felt for probably a good couple of weeks afterwards where I just, you know, I was, I was in a dark place and I just, I just wanted to hurt these people. You know, um, so it's about accessing the truth so that you can tell, uh, do the lie convincingly. So it's not such a dishonest business, you're saying it's a way of seeking truth. Yeah, it sounds weird, but in order to perform a lie, you have to be fully convinced of the truth. It's partly why I think the rehearsal period is so important because if you look at it, you spend all of the rehearsal time practicing the lie, getting the backstory behind the character, the world of the play, understanding the character and their motivations and everything. So you really spend that whole rehearsal period building on the lie. In Jason's early career, he performed an acclaimed New Zealand play, Waiora, a tragedy about a New Zealand family and the value of staying true to your heritage, which saw Jason delve into some of his hidden truths. You could say the lies he had been telling himself resurfaced. My first role as a professional was in Waiora, playing the role of boy who has a real struggle with his father within the world of the play. For me, I could access my own history with my own father, who was an abusive alcoholic. But in a way, 
it became therapeutic exploring that area to a point now where I am able to talk about my past with my father and I was able to do that before he passed about our relationship and the things that he had done that I felt had damaged that relationship and I don't know whether I would have ever been able to do that in my real life had it not been for the not real life of the play. So you almost explore your your thoughts and feelings and, and put things into a context through playing roles, considering motivation of character or the situation characters find themselves in? Yeah, you get to know yourself more and more within a safe environment of the world of, of, of the play, of, of this lie. One of the things I loved about that play was every night I got to confront the father figure and tell him how much he was hurting me while the character I see already you can hear it in my voice I'm I'm getting tearful because um, again it's just accessing that emotion but being able to confront the father figure tell him how you felt and you know that's what I really love about uh, being an actor is you are able to go to these places that you aren't that aren't safe to go to sometimes in real life. I remember when I auditioned for drama school, actually, one of the questions that came from the auditioning panel was, am I an angry young man? I said to them, no, I'm I'm actually not an angry person. The thing I really love about theatre and performing is that I can access an emotion like anger, but I know I'm not going to really hurt anybody. We've heard about writers and actors creating fictions as an attempt to speak truths about their experience of life. They're open about it being a conceit, a lie if you like. Another manifestation of the creative process is much less transparent, less concerned with reflecting the truth than anyone's experience of life. I'm talking about advertising. London's new 123 looks mascara. Just turn the dial. 30 seconds, spray and walk away is simple solution to Lycan, Aggie, Bolt, and Moss. Oh no, George is driving. He's too wasted. I should say something, but I could look dumb in front of money. Now, I'm the first to acknowledge that advertising can be fantastically creative, brilliantly imaginative, and sometimes very entertaining. The thing with advertising is that it can be insidious, evasive about what it's selling, and play on or feed our anxieties. And that is when you become what the philosopher Harry Frankfurt called a bullshitter, as opposed to a liar. Simon Keller, Professor of Philosophy at Victoria University and a regular contributor to Pence on Fire. And a bullshitter is someone who just has no grounding at all in the way things are, no concern at all with what's true and what's false. Therefore, while they might be saying lots of things that are are false, they they don't really count as a liar. Instead, they count, as Frankfurt puts it, as a bullshitter, in that they're just saying whatever they think will sound good, will boost their status, will get them what they want. Whether it turns out to be true or false is just of no concern. So Frankfurt's example, of the, his classic example of a, a field that he thinks has been totally inundated with bullshit is advertising. And he said in some ways that's not that uh, sinister because, well, to the extent that we can recognise something as advertising, perhaps we know that we're in the realm of bullshit and it doesn't, uh, it's not quite as dangerous as it would be otherwise. But why is that the realm of bullshit? Because if you are working for an advertising agency 
you might set out to do whatever you can to associate your product in people's minds with healthy living or beauty or youth or adventure. The question, does this product really promote healthy living or does it really have anything to do with an adventurous lifestyle, it's just of no concern to you. If it does, great. If it doesn't, doesn't matter. Your entire purpose is to form associations in people's mind. So your point is to sell the product. And if somebody comes back to you and says, hey, you know, you've been launching this campaign that suggests, perhaps subliminally, that this product is associated with healthy living, that actually it's unhealthy, as an advertiser, you might think, why is that fact of any interest to me? I don't care. That's, that's not what I'm about. You'd feel no embarrassment at the fact that you've been stating untruths or telling lies because you were never in the business of reporting on the truth or trying to lead people away from the truth. Neither of those things is what you care about. It would be a mistake to characterise the whole advertising industry as bullshit. It's effective at selling, clearly. But the results of some advertising can have unexpected outcomes. I asked Dr Rachel Main, a clinical psychologist who works with young people suffering from eating disorders, about the role that unrealistic body images and advertising have on our sense of self. You know, I work with adolescents and I know adolescents are very susceptible to social media and what they read online and for, for an adult we can kind of step back and understand what's real and what's not whereas a lot of teenagers might struggle to do that. Some people would say that we're used to seeing these sorts of images that are merely um, an idealised fantasy and we can dismiss them as unrealistic. Is that true and fair? There has been some really interesting research looking around studies where people view an image and whether you have a disclaimer at the bottom of the image that says that it's been airbrushed or altered in some way. And they've produced quite interesting findings and found that even when you look at an image and you know that it's fake, so you know it's been altered, you know it's been airbrushed, you know that the skin's been touched up or things have been removed and played with, we still see the same effect where it has an impact on your self-esteem and your own body dissatisfaction. And that's surprising because a number of countries are, I guess, going through some changes around policies and things like that with with whether legally we have to now state whether an image has been altered in some way. Before I chatted to Rachel, I sent her a link to a story about image manipulation, where women's bodies are slimmed down, curves are added, hair removed, bras are placed under swimwear, all projecting the ideal body shape, illustrating that even models don't have perfect bodies. Again, it just points to how far we're going to reach this ideal standard of perfection and what that highlights to me is that that standard is impossible. I mean if a Victoria Secret model can't reach that standard then how on earth is the rest of the world meant to reach that standard? So really it was just quite alarming to me the extreme to which we're going to make images look perfect. If you want to become a Victoria's Secret model, you have to fit the biological mold. Angels must be about 5 feet 9 inches tall with a 24-inch waist and no more than 18% body fat. To put that in perspective, The Sun reports, quote, healthy, normal women have between 21 and 24% body fat, while athletes have between 14 and 20. Anything lower... So, what are the impacts of projecting these fake, ideal body images? And are women buying into the lie? Some people internalise the standards in the media as being really important. 
in terms of their own beliefs about themselves and what they want to be like. And for other people, it's not so important. There's a few mechanisms that they think are involved. So one of the main ones um, is around this theory called social comparison theory. And it's based on the idea that humans to self-evaluate will compare to others. That's generally through a number of different mechanisms. So that's through social interactions, media consumption and looking at images like what we're talking about and even comparing to older versions of ourselves. And we generally compare upwards or downwards. So upwards is when we compare to someone that we evaluate as being more successful, elite or desirable than ourselves. So a a model or a celebrity or a famous sports person, etc. And then downward is when we compare to someone who we think is worse off as ourselves. And funny enough, research points to people that tend to compare both ways. It's actually linked to, to negative outcomes in terms of mood and body image and things like that. Eating disorders are complex. It's not just about pressures that filter through from the media that trigger dramatic weight loss and frenzied diets. I want to be the perfect student. My colleague Sonia Sly is acutely aware that advertising isn't real life. But she found herself suffering from anorexia during her training at drama school, asking herself questions about her identity on top of a mounting anxiety about entering an industry that focuses on how you look. But through ritualistic behaviour associated with the disorder, she became caught in a series of lies lying to family and friends about what and when she was eating, how much exercise she was doing, and even lying to herself as a coping mechanism for a loss of control, which was slowly eating away at her. I guess things kind of just spun out of control, and I arrived, you know, my first day of my second year at drama school. People were looking at me in absolute horror because of how much weight I'd lost. Drama school is really physical, you do a lot of you know, movement classes and things like that. And I would be going for runs after school as well. But yeah, I just kind of continued to lose weight. She'd lost so much weight that she could barely look in the mirror at the emaciated stranger staring back at her. Sonia's athletic body had disappeared. She says it became painful to walk and move her legs. And some days she would go to bed worried she wouldn't wake up the next day. It got to the point where I was like blacking out during breaks. I just had become lethargic and my bones were like digging into the floor when we'd be doing movement classes and rolling around to the point that I actually could not participate in those classes anymore. I was pulled up one day to go into the office with one of the heads of acting and told that I would need to forfeit my year unless I put on weight. I mean, I was a really determined student and I was determined not to have to do that. So I was sent to a dietitian Who put Sonia on a strict eating regime. And Sonia says she did anything she could to make sure she was appearing to gain weight. I'm very aware that when you do have an eating disorder, it's all about concealing the disease and doing whatever you can to for it to continue because you're kind of like feeding into the habit and that habit becomes like a mindset which is complete with a whole bunch of other rituals and this fixation on how much exercise I'm going to do, what I'm going to eat and that's you know obviously very little. 
Sonia says the eating disorder was partly triggered by the loss of her grandmother the year prior, but also coming face to face with the parts of her Chinese identity she'd pushed away for so many years. I was a New Zealand Chinese student and a female and coming out into the industry, where at the time there were very few Asian faces out there. And in the year before I had actually gone to drama school, I remember contacting an agent in Auckland who had outright said to me, I'm sorry, we don't want any Asians on our books. It's an industry where your physical shape and the way you present is really... That's what matters. It's the first thing that people see. But, you know, that is the reality. But it made me retract inside myself. I was just like, well, who am I? I don't know who I am anymore. I had been hiding from sides of myself. And I think a lot of us (laughs) can tend to maybe carry around this idea about who we are or who we would like to be or see sides of ourselves or present a side of ourselves that we want other people to see while also concealing the sides of ourselves that that we can't accept or don't want to see. As a lover of fiction and drama, having spent my entire working life as an actor, writer, producer, director and broadcaster, I've been well steeped in storytelling and fiction. Stories give us a shared experience, a means to interpret and understand our world. They give us dreams and laughter. They take us away and bring us right back down to earth. They scare the pants off us, but most of all, they tell us who we are. I'm Duncan Smith, and this is Pants on Fire, the Fibber's Guide to Lies, Lying and Liars. This episode was engineered by Mark Chesterman and co-produced by Sonia Sly. If you enjoyed this podcast, then you might also like to try The Lost, a podcast exploring New Zealand's missing people. Next week, in the final episode of the series, we explore lies and politics. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.